At the beginning of 2018, I preached a sermon on the whole of the Gospel of Mark. I called it Mark's favorite word and suggested that it is immediately because of the fast pace. After the third service that day, someone approached me and said, so what about the other Gospels? Is there a favorite word there? Like John, is there a favorite word in John? Now, personally, I love those kinds of questions after church because that's what a scholar in residence is for, to ask trivia. But she caught me off guard. I wasn't prepared for the question. I was mentally exhausted after three services. And I, I said, what, what? It's really obvious, though. John's favorite word is so obvious when you read through the fourth gospel. It just leaps off the page. The tricky part is how to read John's gospel in the first place. I know it seems simple, but a whole cottage industry of scholarship has developed over the years, and they debate how best to plunge into these pages. Some, for instance, say you really should start in the back with his conclusion because it's his purpose statement. You heard it. He says, look, Jesus did a lot of things, and they're not all written down, but the ones that were written down were written down for this purpose, that those who believe might have life in him. It's a little bit tricky phrase, though. That word believe, for instance, is not just about intellectual assent. It's not even really what it's about at all. Even though that's involved, it's, it's not like, well, do you believe in germs even if you've never seen one? It's not like that. It might be better to translate it entrusted. Those who entrust their lives to God, entrust their lives to Jesus. More like putting your life in God's hands. But then it's even trickier because in the Greek, there are two different translations. One says he wrote these things that you might come to believe, and another one says, no, that you might continue to believe. And so they debate that one. Is it come to or continue? Personally, I think it's the latter, and I'll tell you why. Years ago, on a Sunday morning, I was in a coffee shop. I had a book in hand I was reading and was getting ready to head off to worship. And this couple came in with two little kids in tow and sat down very close. I was back in a corner, but they sat very close. And the parents were having a heated conversation. What I mean is they were arguing. And I'm trying to read, but pretty soon I'm really listening to the soap opera with my eyes just looking at the page. And it went something like this. I'm cleaning it up a little bit. But he said, honey, I want to join the country club for the girls. And she said, uh-huh, if you join the country club, the girls will never see you. And this went on and on, and my eyes were just big. I'm looking at the book, but I'm listening. And finally, in a huff, she grabs both little girls by the hand. She gets ready to leave, and she looks at him, and she says, I'm going to church, and I'm going to pray for your soul. <laughs> in the Gospel of John, you have to decide every day. It's not, oh yeah, I made a decision for Jesus back in the... No, no, no. In the Gospel of John, every day there are decisions to be made. It's over and over again. So some people say, well, you start in the back and you read toward the front. Others, of course, say, no, no, that's, that's silly. It's a book. You, you start in the beginning and you read toward the end. And it has such a promising opening line in the beginning, echoing Genesis. And so you expect this great story... 
but no, what you get is philosophy, which is to say, it's confusing. You heard it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with... What, what, what is that supposed to mean? How are you supposed to make sense of that? Can you imagine if Jesus says to his followers, yeah, you can call me word. What? What does he mean? These are some easy verses to translate, but they're very hard to understand. But then John adds this line. We didn't read this far, but John says, and the word became flesh. Reference to Jesus' birth. And then he adds one of the great lines, and he pitched his tent among us. He pitched his tent among us. Early in the Gospel of John, when he's calling disciples, the first ones, one of them says, Jesus, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. Turns out, he's staying with us. That's where he came, to stay with us. That's why, for the last couple of weeks, I've been reading the Gospel of John in Starbucks. Now, if you're into local and roastery, you'll just, you, that's up to you. But I'm a tea drinker, I go to Starbucks. But it doesn't matter. The point is, when you go to a coffee shop, it's an everyday, ordinary kind of place because that's where Jesus came, to this everyday, ordinary kind of place. And actually reading there can be a spiritual practice. You kind of you read the gospel and then you look up at the people and you, you kind of go back and forth. Did you ever wonder what people were going through? in the coffee shop, what's going on in their life. Or early in John's Gospel, he tells a story about a guy named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, very distinguished, proper, but he comes to see Jesus at night. During the day, maybe he has to pretend he has the answers to all the questions, but at night, something nags him. He can't sleep. He goes to seek Jesus. He's in line. And then John, smack dab up against that story, puts the story of a woman at a well. Nicodemus has a name, she's nameless. He's a man, she's a woman, he's a Jew, she's Samaritan. But Jesus seeks her out. They talk about water, she thinks he means water, he means life-giving water. And these two people in John's gospel, it's like they're next to each other in line in the coffee shop. What are they going through? One of the Starbucks that I frequent up north is near a hospital and medical offices. Picture a couple, late 40s. They've come down from Chillicothe waiting for the results of her tests. And the stage four cancer is, is terminal. Afterwards, they sit in the coffee shop and neither of them says a word but they both wonder when their anniversary, their 14th anniversary rolls around in October, will she be here? And the reason that scene is so striking is because John goes on to tell two stories, again, back to back of healing, people wanting to be made whole. One of them comes, he's an official, and he says, please, my son's back home. Heal him, take care of him. And then right next to it, a story of a man who sits by this pool of water. They, they've heard rumors, angels stir the water, and the first person who gets in gets well. There are so many people desperate to be well. 
You can read John's gospel in a coffee shop. You can read John's gospel in the waiting room. If you keep reading, you eventually get to the upper room. Except in John, it's not so much Last Supper as last instructions. And then Jesus utters some of the most precious words in all of the fourth gospel. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. How many times have you heard those verses read at a funeral? This week, at Jay Woldridge's funeral, those verses were read. I'll hear them again this week. My best friend's father, Leland, passed away. Words of comfort. It's reading John's gospel. It's, it's powerful stuff. So some people say you start at the end, work back. Some people say you start at the beginning. There's actually a third approach, and I think it's the most convincing. Some scholars say, no, no, no. You start in the middle. Because everything was building up to this middle story, and this middle story is a foreshadowing of something at the end. It's the story of Lazarus. You remember that one? It's one of Jesus' best friends, and he died. So Jesus goes to the funeral, except it's not a funeral. He says, Lazarus, come forth, and the man is raised from the dead. And the old black preachers used to say, if he hadn't said Lazarus, every tomb would have been emptied. Jesus calls forth Lazarus, and it's a kind of foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why the favorite word of John is really obvious. It's life. Jesus came that we might have life. Bold print, italics, underline it, put, you know, exclamation point, life. Not, not, not just that you have a pulse, not just a respiration, but really alive. The last couple of weeks, the whole world watched that saga unfolding in Thailand. Those boys in the cave with their coats, would they get out? And you know how there at the end you'd get a, a little flash in the morning. Oh, they got this many out. And everybody watched. I kept thinking about John's gospel and that image. While they were in that cave, and you know they debated. They may have to leave them in there for months. They had food. They had water. They had shelter, so to speak. They were alive. But it's not the same as when they got out. John's gospel would dare to say that it is possible to live your whole life in that cave and never know it. When instead Jesus calls our name and calls us out to really live, not just be alive, but really live. Week before last, Carla and I went to coffee at Starbucks with an evangelist. I'm not talking about the kind with big hair and a big show on TV and a wife that cries on demand. I'm not talking about that. The gospel writers are sometimes called evangelists because they tell good news. We went to coffee with Phil and Patty Love. And Phil shared with us what he has begun to share with many of you, that he has a rare degenerative disease that is causing him issues now and could well shorten his life, although he has every intention of beating the odds. That's not good news. 
but Phil is an evangelist and he shared with us a statement that he really crafted and memorized and I say memorized because he sent me a copy and it's exactly what he said to us and I want to read it to you I have a deep and abiding confidence that the animating vivifying spirit of life which brought me into this world and has accompanied me at every step along the way will sustain and lead me through this experience come what may and the product of that confidence is joy. <laughs> Phil went to seminary, so that's why he uses words like animating, vivifying, spirit of life. That'll get you good grades in seminary. But you know what he did in just two sentences? He captured the gospel of John. Jesus came that we might have life now. There is one other feature in the Gospel of John that's totally different from the other three. In the other three, Jesus so often is on stage with crowds. Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jews, this, always crowds. In the Gospel of John, sometimes there are crowds, but more often than not, the Gospel writer puts on the simplest stage play, Jesus and one other person. Like Nicodemus or that woman at the well, just Jesus and one other person. So I've been picturing a kind of 21st century production of John's gospel. Simple set, it's a coffee shop. There's Jesus, coffee mug in hand, and one other person. But their back is turned to us. We, we can't quite make out who is that. They're talking, it's intimate. They're talking about life. And then we, we just catch a glimpse, and it's a face you know so well. It's yours. I mean, who else would Jesus be talking to? 